This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is New York Times bestselling writer Meg Wallitzer. Her novels include The Wife, The Tenure Nap, and Uncoupling. The book we talked about in this interview was called The Interestings, which is about six teenagers who meet at summer camp in the 1970s. The story follows them from youth to middle age as they experience the rise and fall of their fortunes, talents, and levels of satisfaction with their lives. Wadzer published her first novel, Sleepwalking, in 1982, just one year out of college. We began the interview talking about how publishing so young affected her life. I think it's good and bad. I mean, I published so early that it was before the so-called Brat Pack. So people, the book, you know, was kind of obscure, but it got really good reviews. But it didn't make my name in a huge way. So in a way, I got a kind of affirmation, but I didn't get celebrity. And that was probably good. But I, you know, did a lot of different things, but I still, you know, kind of moved along through the channels of being a writer and was encouraged every step of the way and and gathered a reputation for myself. But it was really kind of a workmanlike thing. It was a thing that you just did and you had to keep going back and doing. And that is the truth about it, really, for most people. That is just the way it is. Uh, You know, had I had an enormous success early on, it might have turned my head. Had I struggled more early on, it might have defeated me. It's hard to really know. Um, it kept a low boil for me, and that could be frustrating. Your mom was a writer, and you obviously were encouraged at a young age. You published your first book at a young age. But what do you think it was about you that you became a writer and maybe your sibling didn't? You know, you never really know. I just loved doing it. I got affirmation from her, still do. Uh, you know, I just it it spoke to me in all ways it's a chemical thing maybe you know it's hard to know when you were a kid did you tell a lot of stories like when you went to summer camp were you the storyteller no but I had a quirky way I think I had a I was funny I think I was funny and I kind of put that into my work to some extent but I wrote a lot and I read all the time so it was pretty organic really for me you had taken writing classes in school, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the influences of teachers in a writing life. Yeah, I studied with some wonderful teachers who were writers. Mary Gordon, John Irving, John Hawkes uh, were all really important to me and helpful to me and encouraging to me as a writer, even though, you know, especially in the case of someone like John Hawkes, who was an experimental writer, a New Directions writer in the 60s, most known uh, back then, uh, he, his work was so different from what I was doing, and yet he tried to see what I was trying to do and liked it on its own terms. And I think that that's what you try to do when you're teaching writing with your students. They don't have to be mini-yous. They really, really don't, unless you're an egomaniac, and then they probably do. But they were encouraging to me, and I think to have somebody who's there who says, you know, you're good, can just mean all the world to a young writer. And did you have any teacher that gave you some advice that you still think about today? Yeah, Mary Gordon said that you should write only what's important. And what she means by that is what's important to you. And I think I took that very much to heart because I I was kind of writing things that I thought were good ideas, that sounded kind of clever. And then I thought, no, the reason that I like reading certain things is because there's an urgency, an imperative to them. 
And to try to do that in your own work, to take yourself seriously in that way, is something that, you know, you can be a little embarrassed to do, especially if you're young, but I think it's essential to do if you want to have other people care about the work. When you write about what's important to you and you go about your daily life, you must have so many ideas that of things that are interest. How do you know when it bubbles to the top? Well, I do tend to think about my work all the time. Like I'm walking around the street, I'm thinking about my work. Something just keeps gnawing at you, and then you try to figure it out. And I think that that's the thing that keeps coming back in different forms that, that you try to work out. And do you think that they've been similar things, even though your books end up being so different, that there's something nagging at you that's you could say throughout your life has been thematic or consistent? There are some themes, I would say, that have emerged. Uh, you know, um, gender issues, power in a marriage, uh, sexuality and family, and how they don't go together, things like that have um, adolescence, writing about adolescence and how you get from one point in your life to growing up. Those are things that I've come back to again and again. My first book, Sleepwalking, was about these young women who are sort of in love with the romance of death and kind of it's about it's a coming of age story and I think that there's coming of age in quite a few of my books. What was that experience like for you? Coming of age? Um, well it was a mixture of a lot of things the way it is for most people. As somebody with a supportive mother there was the satisfaction of feeling that I had something to say that maybe could you know, that it had a shot at being said. On the other hand, I was ridiculous in the way of adolescence. And if I think back on things I said and letters I wrote to friends, I'm horrified. I have an old friend who I saw for the first time in a long time, and she handed me something, and I didn't even want to see what it was. It was something I'd written. And I I knew that whatever it was, I'd be embarrassed by it because I'd recognize myself in it, and yet it wouldn't be something I would ever do now. And that's what you have to accept in yourself. So we have to be very charitable toward our earlier selves, but it can be hard. Do you feel like it's the same way about your earlier works? Like, are your works of fiction just uh, sort of a moment in time of your artistic life? I don't read them again. I mean, they reissued Sleepwalking and that later book, This Is My Life, uh, this spring. But I felt confident enough in them to think they should be reissued, yet not excitedly confident enough to want to read them now because what if I saw Lon and I said, why did you do it that way? Or even more than that, it, it wouldn't even be that I'd question my choices, but it would be that I would feel the sadness of nostalgia, I think, and I didn't particularly feel like feeling that way. I don't disavow things that I worked very hard on back then, but we just keep moving forward, and I think that that's what a lot of writing is about. It's just journeying forward, and I've been trying to do that. And do you think you have gotten better? Yeah, absolutely, I do. Because I think that I've started to see what I care about, and I've started to look at patterns of things that I've been interested in that I didn't know were patterns, rather than just, ooh, that sounds like a single good idea for a book. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So with your latest book, The Interestings, which is about a 
a group of six young people who meet at a summer camp. It's an art summer camp in New York. And then they go back to their various lives and you follow them throughout their years of, of growing up and dealing with their own families and sicknesses and envy and talent. And I'm just wondering the germ of that for you and what you were thinking about. I did go to a summer camp in Massachusetts, which is actually where I imagine, I don't know if I sort of said specifically where this camp is, but I imagined it's being in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. Um, I went there the summer that I was 15, and it was a miraculous summer for me. I did acting. I was not very good, but I loved it. And I made a group of friends who were more sophisticated than I and knew more about the world. And I learned from them, and I wanted to be among them. And I, my closest friend I met there And we had 12 years where we didn't see each other because she was Canadian. And then we ran into each other again and haven't really been apart very much since then because she lives in New York now. And we often talked about that summer and the different people we knew and what it meant. And I think the people who knew you when you were young really matter because they saw you then. Not only did you see them, they saw you. So it's about being known. And it didn't occur to me until... I wrote the book, oh, that's a good idea for a book. It was kind of marinating inside me, but somewhat subconsciously. And what what did you start with? Was it a character, an image, a place? I started with an idea of what happens to talent over time. And then from there, I think the characters emerged. But I knew right away that the first scene would be at this camp in a boy's teepee. There were these teepees that... uh, I lived in, and some of the boys lived in as well, and they are vivid to me to this day. Have you slept in a teepee since? No, I don't (laughs) think it's ever going to happen again. I have a moment in the book, at the end of the book, where Jules, my main character, goes back to the summer camp to run it now, and she goes into the teepee, and she's shocked by how closed and hot and airless it feels. And of course it would feel that way to me too. But when you're young, you don't need air or light or anything. You just need to be with your cohort. What about talent over time? It's interesting because I think I heard an interview and I think you said like Julie Taymor maybe went to your camp and a lot of people who at a very young age, something special was identified in them and they made it. And I'm sure there's plenty of people who went to that camp who who didn't. I mean, what do you think it is that brings people to the level where they can express their talent in a way that it becomes their living? It's not just about talent. It's often about luck. And the luck can be about connections and money and things like that. And some of these people who went to the summer camp did have families who were connected. They were from New York City. Their parents knew Jerome Robbins or whomever. You know, they were people who... um, trafficked in that world of art. And I think that that's not true for most people. And I uh, wanted to acknowledge that, really, as it's not a a level playing field at all. And so how do you deal with that with students who come to you who have no, you know, writers and editors in their back pocket? Well, it's very hard. And yet I kind of feel like work, you know, good work will out. You have to kind of give everybody the same uh, sense of, the importance of figuring things out and rewriting. um, That's something that both the neophyte writer without talent and the neophyte writer with great talent uh, can be helped by. Look, you know, even writers who don't seem to have talent sometimes come out with amazing things later on. I am, and, and I don't even view it that way, really. I'm not going, oh, who has talent? I mean, I'm just sort of like looking at what uh, people are trying to do. 
and trying to just sort of be, I guess the therapy model may be the best. I often joke about it, uh, but it, it, you're trying really not to judge. You're trying to help and you're trying to kind of stand back and not get in the way of the other person and what they're trying to do. And that's sort of my role, I think, in teaching. Have you noticed anything about really talented people that make it in their profession, whether it's writing or painting or dancing or whatever, that you you see something similar in all of them? Well, all the ones who've done really well work all the time. I mean, this is something that I have found. They just work all the time because they're trying to figure something out and make it better constantly. So that's not a quality, but it's it's an activity that almost anybody engaging in, in an art can do, which is work constantly. Like, I'll send myself my work uh, on my Kindle app on my iPhone. I mean, when I'm done with a day of work, when I was writing the interestings, I would hate leaving my desk, but I had to go meet somebody for dinner or something. And I'm on the subway and I'm looking at the page that I just wrote. And here it is in book font. It looks real. It has a kind of authority to it. And I'm thinking about the characters again. I'm still continuing to work and think about it. I'm not just dropping off my work when it ends at the day. And I think that that's true. Beyond that, um, yeah, I guess it's all about sensibility. The people who are really talented, um, they each have a sensibility that you might be able to describe. What is your process of writing? I try to, you know, get down as much as I can without worrying about what it's going to be, usually around 80 pages, because that's an amount that's enough to make you feel proud of it, but not too much to make you feel like you're going to kill yourself if you put it aside. And then at that point, I take it and I go sit in a coffee shop and I start marking it up and I look at really what I have as opposed to what I thought I wanted to have. So, And then I start making a rudimentary outline, but only at that point. How did you come to this decision that 80 pages is what you should commit to at first? I came to it, I think, because I had done that and it felt like the right amount of number of pages for me. And it worked out well. And I did decide to continue. And I thought, well, what if I'd had to put it aside? It wouldn't have been a disaster if I'd, say, written as much as if I'd written, you know, 200 pages. And everybody would say, what happened to that 200 pages? And you'd say, well, I'm not doing them anymore. 80 pages is like, oh, um, it just didn't feel like the end of my life. And have you put the 80 pages away before? Yeah, you know, put it away, but... How for how long? You, you were all, we're always, you know, looking at the soup bones of our life to try to make a new soup. I want to talk about big vision for your work. When you have a big vision, when you're starting off and it's something in your head that you haven't manifest yet. And I talked about this a little bit with Ann Patchett about how you might start a project and you have this big vision, but what you manifest on the page might never meet that vision, I don't know what your experience mm-hmm. of it of it is, but it's sort of like you have something in your head, but the articulation of it is so difficult sometimes. I mean, do you feel like there's a difference between your vision of a book and what you end up with as a product? And if so, is that okay with you? Or do you feel like you fulfill your vision? No, you're always trying to make it closer and closer to the vision to what you actually do. You're trying to bring them closer together. But it's hard. It's like movie adaptations of a book. You know, does it feel like the book? It can and it might not. I mean, one of my favorite novels is Mrs. Bridge by Evan S. Connell. It's a 1959 novel that's about a Kansas City housewife right before World War II. 
And it was made into a very kind of faithful but not that interesting movie called Mr. and Mrs. Bridge with Paul Newman and Wood Joanne Woodward. And I tell people, oh, read that book, but don't worry about that movie because it doesn't give any of that ineffable, subtle stuff between things. And you can't say what's missing. The movie feels very faithful, but you can't really say what's missing. You have had two of your books turn into film projects, and now your book, The Wife, I think is going to be made into a film? Yeah, it's been um, optioned uh, and will be perhaps made into a Scandinavian production starring Glenn Close. So that's exciting. It's fun to have something shot. It's the icing on the cake. It, it may bear very little resemblance to what you wrote, but it's a variation on a theme, and you get some extra money for it, and why not? And you don't participate in the script writing? No, I don't want to. Because you just like the... I like writing this the way I wanted to write. The idea of taking note, studio notes on something that I did on my own and in good shape, with notes from an editor, of course, but I'm done with getting notes on it, yeah. Right. So this book, The Wife, is is so interesting. It's told in the first-person point of view, and it's about a woman named Joan who's married to a very famous writer. She began life as a writer, and he his fame sort of took over their life, and they had children, and he wins this big prize. And there's some secrets revealed at the end. And I'm wondering what sort of was the impetus for you when you started writing this. It was told in a different point of view than you usually write in. And it did have some twists and turns. So you had to be very conscious of um, your language choice all the time. I'm always conscious of my language choice. But in this case, you don't want to reveal information that you shouldn't reveal till the end. Um, it's a little tricky because you don't. this isn't a movie. This is a book. And you don't want it to feel cheap in some way in its withholding of information. The story needs to be strong, but the voice needs to be stronger. That's and and what was your what were you thinking about when you started writing? I was thinking about um, male power and female complicity with that power issues like that. You have a young adult novel coming out soon, and I'm wondering what you were thinking about or what interested you in trying out this genre or writing for this age bracket. Well, my son at the time was reading John Green's Looking for Alaska, and it meant a lot to him. And he wanted me to read the book, and I did, and I was taken aback by how, you know, frank it was and how grown up it seemed. So I kind of learned some things about him that maybe he needed a little less babying than I thought. He was more in the world and interested in this these kind of passionate lives. So how did you maybe change your style or what did you think about differently for this age? Well, I well, I still want to write things that are true to me and feel like I wrote them and because I did only write about what interests me. I can't, you can't try to game the system. It doesn't work. Uh, I just wrote about a troubled but emotionally, emotionally fragile, highly intelligent teenager who's sent to this boarding, special boarding school where she writes in a journal, reads Sylvia Plath, and goes back into the world in which she's reunited with the boyfriend she's lost. Now, that didn't happen to me or anyone I know, and I think we know that, but um, being free to write in a teenager's voice was wonderful. Did it make you, like, when you were saying you're very careful with words, were you really thinking about that and your word choice for a younger audience? Yeah, I mean, I think that they are very demanding consumers, as they should be, as adults are, too. Um, they want things to feel right. They want them to feel authentic. And I had a teenage girl look through my manuscript to see if any words jumped out, and when she did, I did take them out. So tell me about your influences. Obviously, you started young, but I'm wondering if you could read a passage from a writer that influenced you. Sure. Um, 
I brought along a passage from Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar because I did read it as an adolescent. And I, I sold my first book, Sleepwalking, when I was in college. And as I said, it's about these girls who kind of worship death. And one of the poets who they really worship is Sylvia Plath. And Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar seems to me an interesting example of a book that has a great deal of inevitability attached to it, in large part because we know that the author would go on to commit suicide at age 30. And here she is writing this book about a woman who becomes depressed and then recovers. And we're thinking, oh, but she doesn't really, finally. She doesn't. And it's so painful to read that. She's also a poet and known as a poet, and this is the one novel she wrote. And she had initially published it under a pseudonym, Victoria Lucas, I believe, because it was so closely autobiographical. But it's still kind of poetic, and it's still very immediate. And here it is in first person. And I think that the book really did have to be in first person, unlike a lot of my books, which are best, I think, in third person. So just the very opening goes like this. It was a queer, sultry summer, the summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs, and I didn't know what I was doing in New York. I'm stupid about electrocutions. The idea of being electrocuted makes me sick. And that's all there was to read about in the papers. Goggle-eyed headlines staring up at me on every street corner and at the fusty, peanut-smelling mouth of every subway. It had nothing to do with me, but I couldn't help wondering what it would be like being burned alive along your nerves. I thought it must be the worst thing in the world. So you see from that, really, it's so vivid, and it also kind of foreshadows this idea of the electroshock that she gets later in the book, which most of us who know the book know that. You know, the Rosenberg's electrocution, she's making that kind of a, a reference to her own treatment later on. But it's just also, it's kind of, it, it seems to bring to mind that the world is ugly and hateful, and that's the way she's starting to feel separated, off in a bell jar from the rest of the world. Now, I didn't feel that way as a young writer, and I didn't experience depression, but I think all adolescents really feel that to some non-pathological degree or pathological degree, and uh, that first-person kind of disdain and removal from everything is something that I have wanted to capture when I've been writing about adolescence. And can you read a passage from something you wrote? It could be something you thought was hard or something that changed from the first draft. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the opening passage, um, here's a compressed version of the opening passage of The Interestings. On a warm night in early July of that long evaporated year, the Interestings gathered for the very first time. They were only 15, 16, and they began to call themselves the name with tentative irony. Julie Jacobson, an outsider and possibly even a freak, had been invited in for obscure reasons, and now she sat in a corner on the unswept floor and attempted to position herself so she would appear unobtrusive yet not pathetic, which was a difficult balance. It had been miraculous when Ash Wolf had nodded to her earlier in the night at the row of sinks and asked if she wanted to come join her and some of the others later. Some of the others. Even that wording was thrilling. So that's the opening, and you know, when I first wrote it, um, the first line went, on a warm night in early July of that year, the interestings gathered for the very first time. And I, you know, it kept moving through the, the channels of going into production, and finally I looked at it, and I thought to myself that I really did not 
make it feel like this is going to be a highly emotional book, which I think it is. And that's when I added long evaporated, so that the passage reads, on a warm night in early July of that long evaporated year, the interesting is gathered for the very first time. And what long evaporated does is two things. One, it tells you that time has passed without saying long ago when she was young, which is so clunky, or, or putting 1974 at the headline, you know, as a headline. But the second thing it does when you put in long evaporated is that it shows you that there's a wistfulness attached. So it gives you emotion plus a fact. It gives you quite a, quite a lot of stuff. I'm always talking to students about how things satisfy kind of double purpose in fiction. And that's an example of it. And when it wasn't in there, two things were missing, really, the emotion and the sense of this is historical. And how did you come up with the name, The Interestings, for this group? I always knew it was going to be called that. It was just this kind of clumsy name that was sort of that was ironic and yet not entirely. I like that it was so awkward, although it does lead to people going on Amazon and writing the interestings, you know, not very as their headline. So what are you going to do? Are titles generally easy for you to come up with? The easier the book, the more the book, the more I know the book, the easier the title is. The more the book is hard, I think the harder the title is, and that may be, it may tell you something. Have, it, have you sold books without titles that you had to agree on later? Yes, and uh, they always were books I struggled with somewhat. Were you happy with the titles? No. I need to know that it's right. And once I know it's right, nobody can talk me out of it. I'll, I know that it's right. Do you often go into books knowing the title beforehand? Yeah, I really do. I like that. You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is New York Times bestselling author Meg Wallitzer. Her novels include The Wife, The Ten-Year Nap, Uncoupling, and The Interestings. Where do you write? I write on my bed. I write in my living room. I write in coffee shops. I write in a library. So you can write with silence or noise? I can write in silence or ambient, low-level noise. I can't write with music. I can't write with shouting, and I can't write with talking. And what do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? To get away from writing, I will watch something like a, you know, a good film. Would be, a movie theater would be great. I like to walk, because I live in New York. A long, long walk, listening to music is great. And who do you show you're writing to first to get feedback? My editor, Sarah, my mother, uh, a couple of writer friends. How have you dealt with rejection? Rejection never feels good. You have to, It's really about dealing with not feeling good, really dealing with the absence of somebody thinking what you're doing is great, especially if you were this you know, kid who had the attention and approval of adults around you. To not have that suddenly, to have them say no, makes you want to say, but but what are you talking about? I'm the one who everybody always liked. But there are other people, and, and it's not a horse race, as my first editor told me, but it can feel like one. And what is your favorite word? Enthralling just came to mind. I like thrall, being in someone's thrall. That's a good word. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Meg Wallitzer author of The Wife, The Ten-Year Nap, Uncoupling, and The Interestings, among others. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft Dialogue on Writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. 
The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.